What's up, Rodney? How you doing today? What's going on, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Eh, you know, today's a good day, man. Good day. What's going on? Red Wigglers. <laughs> Red Wigglers. <laughs> I think sometimes, I've said this before, I, I don't even know where you come up with these things. I, I, got into, I got into composting a little while ago. Okay, so wait a second. Red Wigglers and composting. They're worms. They eat up all the produce and paper. I, I and gotta be honest. I thought Twizzlers when you said Red Wigglers. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. You would not. I don't think you want to eat so these. So are you using them? Yeah, I bought a thousand of them. And then they're in a composting bin and they eat up all the... Do they you know, reproduce? Yeah. Yeah, the numbers double like every 60 days. Oh my God. I got a lot of wigglers. I really need to know how this, like in six months, how many wigglers you have and if it's, and if it's helping at all. I'll let you know, first batch of soil is gonna be ready for plant usage in, a, in about a month. I think you're gonna have to let the audience know the progress of this. Yeah, we might post some photos of the uh, fortified plants. All right, keep us posted. Welcome to Under the Skin, or welcome back if you're a return listener. Now, this is a, a podcast where we look to explore perspective, explore conversations uh, that are difficult to have, or provide some real depth to, to the way people have experienced things in life, uh, whether it's about race, politics, uh, sexual discrimination, or any other difficult topics that, that we find uh, hard to talk about these days. It's an effort to evaluate our mindsets and hopefully give you an opportunity to have a new data point to evaluate your own in hopes that we can evolve and continue to think about things a little bit more empathetically and a little bit differently as we try to you know, bridge this ongoing divide that, that we are finding here in this country. Uh, I'm going to tee up today's conversation. I will say at the top, there is a moment where the subject matter gets a little heavy, uh, explicit in nature. If you typically listen with a child, young child, you may not want to. Uh, definitely a parenting call, but we wanted to call it out. But today's conversation is with Lloyd Wilkie. He's an activist, a human relations trainer, spanning across law enforcement, educators, business, and nonprofit. He's a mediator, he's a youth worker, he's a boxing and self-defense coach at the LA Riot, and he's a singer. So he doesn't really have that much going on in his day-to-day. -day. In the conversation, we talk about growing up in Boston during the civil rights movement. We talk about knowing who you are and its importance, the criminal justice system, boxing, and those are just a few of the key topics. Uh, we definitely need a part two with Lloyd because we weren't able to go very deep on some of these because we were limited on time. But it's to call out uh, uh, Lloyd actually reached back out to us and called out. Uh, there's a moment where he talks about uh, deaths in L.A. County, um, deaths by police uh, on citizens, and mentioned that to this point this year, there's 300 unarmed deaths, and, and he wanted to correct that. They are not, uh, all, all the citizens that have been shot by police were not all unarmed. We don't have the accurate numbers for armed versus unarmed, but want to make sure we're not uh, promoting fake news here. That's not what we're about. Um, that's it. So, hey, sit back. Enjoy the show. When you don't know who you are, then you'll 
then you're a, a, a vessel for somebody else to put in who you are. You know, thinking that you know hard work is going to get me ahead and everything. And then, then when he tried, he he he's a welder, master welder after World War II, right? But he can't get a job because the union is segregated. spend time talking to boys and young women, right, about who are you, you know, having them have a conversation. You talk about difficult conversations. These are difficult conversations because you have to really search yourself, right, to know who you are. I know Lloyd, the activist, the um, implicit bias teacher, the boxing coach, boxing coach, uh, community guy, the connector. Like you, you connected me with multiple people. Um, but, but your history, I, you grew up in LA. No, no, you didn't grow up in LA. Boston. Yeah, I grew up in Boston. Exactly. Yeah. I was. Wow. What is this? What is this East Coast? I know we've got all also our last guest was also in New Hampshire and now we've got a Boston guy. So. Boston. Yes. And you went to Boston College, too, right? Well, actually, I went to Boston College High School. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's okay. a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, that's a thing, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, you know, I was on the I was on the track on the fast track to Boston College, but I, I didn't uh, I didn't make that that final destination gotcha mm -hmm. so you grew up so we grew up in boston what was that like man well let's see uh, uh so so <laughs> i was born in 1955 that was the same year that uh, rosa parks uh, made her decision earlier the earlier the month that i was born she she uh made a decision uh to to not give up her seat so um that was the kind of time frame, right? So I'm kind of born into, uh, you know, that context. Uh, but Boston, you know, you would think is sort of the cradle of liberty and all that kind of thing. But uh, it was rather, um, rather segregated. Um, and, uh, and, you know, even to this day, uh, wrestles with um, questions of race um, in, in, in very distinct ways. Um, so coming up in Boston, you know, um, that was, that was a, a central theme in my life was wrestling with race. Right. Were your parents, would you call them activists or were they very active in the or a cause or any? Uh, no, the, my, my parents were both, um, um, sons and my, my father was a son and my, my mother was a daughter of immigrants. Right. Um, my father's people came from Barbados in the West Indies. My mother's family came from Cabo Verde, the uh, islands off the coast of West Africa. Um, so they were very much in, 
you know, in the mode of like, let's get into this society, let's earn all that we can, let's work, let's move forward, let's assimilate, and let's be a part of America. You know, that was the generation that that raised me. Right. You know? um, it, it, but as you know, as you as we you know indicated, the the context was one where there was all the segregation and there was all of the. The, you know, civil rights struggle was 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 in full force at that particular time, so they couldn't be they couldn't avoid it, right? Right. Um, and they certainly were impacted by it, being black people, right? Um, so you know, over time, they've they've uh, you know um, became they they weren't active active, but they were um, they were woke. <laughs> the new ter- the ki- you know the saying? term the kids yeah. are using they got woke after a while and you know, really you know what got them woke was you know when their kids got woke mm. you know because that's really what was happening you know I, I uh, during the 60s um, I, I, I was heavily influenced by you know Black Panthers in my neighborhood and Nation of Islam you know was was really active in my neighborhood I, we grew up I grew up around the corner from Louis Farrakhan Oh really? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, so all those things were influencing me on a on a very conscious level. Um, you know, at the same time, I was being raised by my my dad, who was you know kind of conservative, and my 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 parents were Catholics. I went to Catholic school. I was. So did I. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was an altar boy, and uh, um, and very much as I said. I was mentioning to you earlier, my intention was to go to Boston College and become a priest. Yeah, a lot of people don't know Boston College is Catholic school. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, you, you say uh, Nation of Islam. I, my dad grew up in Cincy. I, I remember a story. It's like, man, they almost had me. They almost had me, but then they told me I couldn't eat ice cream because it's white. And he was like, nope. <laughs> I'm out. That's good. Did you see the movie Ali? Uh, yeah. The, the Will Smith. Yeah. 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 When uh, um, I forget the guy's name that uh, was the second in his corner that said, man, I, I'd be a Muslim, but man, I like pig feet and white women too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. How how did your parents um, try like assimilation is always something that Rodney and I talk about, especially um, black people trying to assimilate in in white culture, Mm. white culture. How did your parents attempt and ultimately struggle with it? Well, in our context, context and a question because it's different because they they immigrated from Barbados and Cape Cod, so green. Green Cape? Yeah. Yeah. And is that a Spanish territory? No, it's a Portuguese colony. Portuguese colony. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so it's very different than how a lot of other mm-hmm. brown skin folks immigrated here. Mm-hmm. But it's in, but we all get lumped into that black. But like you go back to the Roman Empire and how a, um, a Spaniard could, could assimilate because mm-hmm. they looked like an Italian mm-hmm. from, in many parts. Mm-hmm. Versus here in the U.S., the African American, the brown skin, the black skin assimilation right. is different. How, so yeah, that's you know that's a really good question. Um, how do I say this? Um, they're you know they 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 counted on their work ethic to uh, to um, separate them from from the struggle that was going on with Black Americans, right? Um, 
the the say the white employer, for example, would would favor an immigrant over uh, a native born black person. Right. Right. Uh, to do some labor. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, therefore, uh, you know, and it's and it's kind of you know a, a lot of that still goes on today. I would say, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they can get that person cheaper, or they could get that person, uh, uh, you know, to do some things that that maybe they wouldn't get the other individuals to do, right? Right. So they, they you know, that was part of it. Um, in my mother's case, uh, when they came over, they spoke another language, right? They spoke mm-hmm. uh, Creole. Which is you know a a dialect of Portuguese with African you know uh, influence. Uh, so, but when they came here, they immediately ditched it, you know, uh, uh, in, in in you know in favor of trying to you know. So in other words, I didn't I didn't learn Creole, right? My mother didn't mm-hmm. speak it, and we didn't speak it in the house. Um, you know, because she wanted me to be articulate in English. You know, that was the thing. So, so to the you, your question about assimilation, I, I, I'm without my, you know, my language, right? Um, those those are a couple of the things um, that I that I think about in terms of assimilation. The other thing is they impressed upon me the importance of education, right? They they I mean it was like it was uh, it was a given. That you know, college was in my future, right? Uh-huh. Uh, although I have no photographs to show that either of my parents graduated from high school, <clears throat> I don't have any indication that they did. It never, it never came up as a conversation. But they realized the importance. Yeah, they pushed. They were pushing on that. Um, you know, I know they attended high school. I don't, I don't know if they graduated, right? Um, it, it was, it never was discussed. So, you know, it was, it was in, you know, I'll tell you how, how much it was intended that I go to college was I had, uh, at the age of about three or four or five, I was given this blazer, you know, uh, a jacket and on the jacket, there's a patch and it has a college bound on it. And it has the year that I'm supposed to enter college, right? <laughs> you know, it has a, on, on this patch on the front of the jacket, yeah. right? And um, I wore that jacket for a long time, and I got some photographs of me wearing it now, you know. Uh, but it, you know, it was just it was a given, right? And uh, and the you know the the interesting thing is that um, I did not go to college uh, after all that. Um, I, you know, and in fact, uh, is there's a there's a very long and detailed story about all of that. But um, you know, and I'm I'm probably revealing. More than I should, but actually, I'm a I'm a high school dropout, yeah. right? So I went to that uh, I went to Boston College Boston High College. School, right? And uh, and I was unable to graduate with my class, and, and there was and there's a you know there's a whole complex of uh, issues uh, in, involved in that. With your parents, how well how did they feel about that? So you know, again, it's kind of a complex story. I, I say that you know I had uh, experienced trauma. And experienced some um, a lot of struggle uh, from the time I was in middle school um, until you know, and all the way through high school. Um, it was it was a very traumatic period for me. Um, one of the things you might know 
uh, is that Boston College High School was featured in a film called Spotlight. Oh. Oh, yeah. The, uh... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark Ruffalo? Yes. Mark yeah. yeah. Mark the Ruffalo. Hulk. Yeah. So uh, I have to tell you that when I watched that film, I was uh, numb from what I was experiencing uh, in watching that. So you you know that it has to do with this scandal around mm-hmm. uh, uh, priests right. abusing young right. boys. You right. Know? And uh, so it's an it's an all boys school, and uh, there was uh, a no, there was a uh, a pedophile that was uh, active on that campus, right, and brought to light a lot of. Uh, 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 problems in Boston uh, that involved priests and young boys. Uh, you know, I told you that I I had a, every intention of becoming a priest, and that actually was uh, from the time I was about seven years old. Really? And uh, you know, I was at, you know I, I I say this with all clarity that I was called to the ministry, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was a you know, I was heavily involved in the church and um, as an altar boy. And I used to have this job uh, when I was in middle school, working at the rectory with the priests that lived there. Um, and um, I, 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 w- I was a, a victim um, uh, of, a, of a molestation by a priest a- at that time, right? Um, which, you know, caused me a lot of trauma and something that I had to deal with on my own. I never spoke about it to anyone. Right. So my parents didn't know. No one knew. I, I never talked about it until I became an adult. And I heard the stories starting to leak out about what was happening to other people in Boston. And then I was able to kind of, you know, let it out. Uh, little by little, and it helped me to talk about it, and it helped. I hope it would p- perhaps help some other people right. if I talked about it. Um, and then that film came out here recently, man, and that was like that was a mind blowing um, thing because you could see the impact it had on so many lives, right? right? Um, mm-hmm. And the devastation that it caused for so many people, right? And and all I could think of is, you know, I'm I'm so grateful and blessed to be first just living right and alive today because many of these people were so so severely impacted they took their own lives yeah. um, and and others have gone down such a such a road to destruction you know that uh, involved all sorts of d- drug abuse and, and all, all kinds of other things and I'm, I'm still here you know so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful and I feel like uh, you know there's 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 got to be a reason for that. Yeah. You know, um, so in addition to the fact that this this trauma impacted me and my and my my education, the other the other really strong thing that happened uh, in high school was that the, that that was the period of time when the busing um, uh, controversy was going on in in, the, in Boston. Right. A judge um, uh, mandated that Boston desegregated schools. Right. Because it would, you know, you just went to your local school and the whole city was segregated. So, you know, the the schools were segregated. Right. Um, They wanted us to bus our students to South Boston and for Mm -hmm. South. South, See, you hear my man right there. (laughs) South. 
and and they bus their kids to Roxbury and you know and and other areas, right? And that let loose a torrent of of uh, of protest and and uh, you know political machinations and uh, and just outright violence all across the city, right? And which had already been pretty <coughs> tense anyhow. Um, so I was in the midst of that going back and forth to high school. Right. I had to fight to get to school, fight to get back home from school. And where where B.C. High is, is like right in the middle of, of all of that. So it was uh, it was it was. So you're a boxing instructor. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with surviving? Uh, yeah. You could draw a straight line from then to now. Um, yeah. I, I learned about self-defense at a very early age. So there's so much that just, you just said. So firstly, <laughs> firstly, thank you for sharing yeah, the story. And I, I, I'm sorry that that happened. Yeah, man. Um, I have, I have like five follow up questions easily, but Keith, I'll let you go first. We, you went through a lot and you talk about how your parents tried to assimilate with language and work ethic and, and just, you know, nose to the grind, it sounds like, and just, you know, kind of keep their head under underground. And then at the same time, you've got Rosa Parks and then, you know, 12, 13 years later, you've got busing. And, and Boston has been the heart of many racial, racial controversies. And we even talked about that with Speaks a little bit. Um, at what point did your parents, as you say, become woke and how did all of this impact their ability to assimilate, which, you know, kind of helped, you know, you get involved. And, you know, there's there's a there's a lot in that question. But yeah. So, yeah, we yeah, yeah. One one additional thing that occurred, you know, before even before that whole busing thing was that in 68 or 69, there was a riot. Um, you know, this was following Dr. King's death. Um, but it, it was the year after I think that Dr. King was was assassinated. Right. We had a we had a riot in Boston um, and it devastated the black community and, or actually actually it wasn't a black community. It, in Roxbury, Dorchester was a mostly Jewish and 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 an increasingly black community. Uh, but once we had the riot, then it became the black community. <laughs> Uh, uh, there was a, there was a massive white flight from, uh, from that area and, uh, uh, and, and an increase of, of folks coming up from the South and so on. And, and so it, it the, the whole, the change in the neighborhood began in, in earnest at that point. And so, so where we were living in a, in a more, we were the minority as black people in our neighborhood for you know for the early years of my life but then suddenly it, it, the whole neighborhood is black right and so my 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 parents now are surrounded you know with 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 black folks you know probably uh and so they're starting i think that i think you know and i can only surmise that 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 had an influence on on their thinking right um they start to you know in, in, in a, they they're kind of in a way integrating into the black community because they saw themselves as Somewhat separate. I mean, they, almost. Yeah, almost. You know, this. I mean, you know, my parents. I know the generation before them saw themselves as a different, you know, group of people. Right. They didn't see themselves as as black Americans. They saw themselves as 
No, you know, in fact, the people from from Cape Verde they 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 thought them themselves as Portuguese, right? Which was really a trip because um, the only reason they're Portuguese is because the Portuguese colonized owned the land yeah, or took yeah, the land, right? Right, and uh, and so so how they how they began to make this transition was just because they were starting to just be, you know my I remember my my parents befriended some folk that were you know from the south and they used to hang out all the time together there's my mom up there in a picture with her her best friend mm-hmm. uh and they, they they hung out a lot and uh um you know they shared experiences and and they you know they shared a few drinks and and, and dancing and, and nightlife and stuff together and so then things i think they started to evolve in their thinking but i think really the thing that that got them more active activated or or more woke was you know when i would come in the door with with different ideas you know i came in one day all of a sudden i'm i'm wearing an afro now it's gonna happen and my and my people were not having that because uh because that that connected me with those 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 protesters or those people you know who were uh, you know so you know my, my dad me and my dad fought over that you know bitterly mm-hmm. right um, but I, you know I started to share with him what I what I was trying to do I, you know I'm, I'm trying to express my blackness dad I'm black dad we are African people D- mom Cape Verde is Africa. It's not Portugal. It's Africa. It's right there. Look at the map. It's right there. <laughs> right. And then in 1973, the, the Cape Verdeans won their independence from from the Portuguese. And then that news started to spread throughout the Cape Verdean community in the States. And they were like, oh, wait a minute. We're Africans. <laughs> right. And then we, you know, they, they the whole community started to understand their connection to Africa. And again, I have to tell you, the Nation of Islam did much more to teach me about Africa than anything I learned in the public schools or oh, in, sure. in, in, in Catholic school. They, they weren't teaching me anything about Africa. I learned about Africa from the Nation of Islam. I learned about the, about Africa from the Black Panthers that, that were on the street corners and that, that, were, that were giving me the newspaper and were sitting me down and talking to me about who I am, where I, where, who I am, you know, and, and, uh, and, and who I am in this nation, right? Um, so I was heavily influenced by all of that. And I, when I bring that home, then it became some big debates in the house, you know, and, and uh, I think, I think, you know, me and my little brother, you know, we're, we're more responsible for, uh, for, for, you know, for turning the light on, um, for my parents than, than anything else. So it became real for them because it was real for you. Mm-hmm. And, and technically like, you, you were African-American, like you weren't, you didn't immigrate here. You were. I was here. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> what about, so I, it's interesting. I heard a story from one of my barbers who grew up in Inglewood. He said, he's like, man, yeah, Nigerian, Nigerians don't like African-Americans. He had one of his buddies in high school, have him over for food after school. And his mom was like, no, 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 no. You get that lazy nigata out of here. <laughs> like, and he's like, they had, a, they had a word for us. Mm. And then she didn't want me in the house. She didn't, she didn't want me influencing her son. Mm. And, and, and it's interesting because you look at the, you know, Keith, we talked to the diaspora of, of black gets lumped into oh well it's just all one Mm. one mind all get along hearing that story especially as a a a white american um it's fascinating to me because we do talk about 
you know, just going back to that point of assimilation a lot, is this idea that, you know, Scottish come over, the Italians come over, they all hate each other until they all of a sudden assimilate into a single skin-colored community. And then um, all of a sudden you have darker-skinned people from all different backgrounds in Africa. Now they're all of a sudden African-American. Now they're all black. But the communities within still have those same struggles that the white communities have, but from a, from a, we'll call it a white perspective, it's, oh, these are all black people. Mm. And, and it's a really, I think it's a, a really awesome story to, to share that perspective of, of how it is still very similar, mm. um, just because mm-hmm. the skin colors are different. Cultures are, are, you know, everybody has that cultural attachment. And regardless yeah. of whether you have the same skin color as me or not, we might still have a, a disconnect in, in, in assimilating into a common community. It just so happens that skin color is overt and it's right in front of you. So it, it, creates this this uh, ongoing disconnect especially when you consider the history of our country so it's just it was a it's a a really for me a, an awesome story because i don't hear stories like that a lot right uh, and, yeah and so i appreciate you sharing that as well you know just 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 to add to that you know the other thing that contributed obviously um to to their evolution and thinking too was that you know like an example would be my dad, you know, thinking that, you know, hard work is going to get me ahead and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, then when he tried, he, he, he's a welder, master welder after World War II, right? But he can't get a job because the union is segregated and they won't allow black people <laughs> to, be a, to be in the union. So if you can't be in the union, you can't work. And so... Now he's oh okay so oh I'm black now <laughs> you know I was I wasn't black during the war when you needed so me was to, he a welder in the war yeah my mother was a riveter and so <laughs> they worked they were building ships during the war they, that's that's how they met so he uh, my grandpa was a mechanic mm. and that kept him from being deployed mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which he is thankful for but that's so yeah, he so he got lumped in, yeah. and so he was feeling it differently. He was feeling it differently at the war, you know. What about so you you talked about connection to Africa, uh, nation of Islam helped mm-hmm. educate, which is a huge thing because to American books, it's just a land of heathens that need saving and mm-hmm. throw spears and whatnot. But you actually have a direct line connection to Africa mm-hmm. versus me and a lot of African Americans. It the his the history's lost. It's not even word of mouth. My last name's Campbell. I actually do have some UK blood from a great-great-grandma. So there is some connection there, but that's not where my name came from. It came from slavery somewhere. And I think that a lot of what happens here and what's going on is a lot a l- lack of identity. Hmm. Um, or it seems to affect the African-American community. Do you think that your connection to Africa, like, has it affected you? Um, in any way, um, positively, negatively. I think I would just say that y- your point is 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 well is well put. That when we have a lack of I- of our own personal identity, we we don't know who we are, right? When you don't know who you are, then you then you're a, a, a vessel for somebody else to put in who you are, right? Somebody else can tell you who you are because you don't know who you are. 
you know? Somebody else can easily mislead you to thinking that you're someone and that you're not, mm-hmm. right? And so we have a history of that because we have this vacuum, right? Where our, in, in particular, you know Nature that Nature abhors a vacuum. Okay. And so you know... You know that I do a lot of youth work, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, and I'm focused on on on, on young people you, I, knowing who you are, right? So that no one can come along and misguide you, right? Hoodwink you, bamboozle you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Bamboozle. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, I spend a lot of time and a lot of my time over the years at juvenile hall. Right, where I spend time talking to boys and young women, right, about who are you, you know, having them have a conversation. You talk about difficult conversation. These are difficult conversations because you have to really search yourself, right, to know who you are. And uh, and so I, you know, I. I think that that's essential. That's you know, that's that's the number one question, and perhaps at the root root cause of of a lot of our society's problems. Mm-hmm. We don't know who we are. So, would you say having to Rodney's question a little bit, having that direct tie to Africa? And your parents were very, especially early in your early formative years, you know, we're, we're hardworking, we're from, you know, we're Portuguese, we're, they, they brought an identity with them. And you experienced some really strong trauma. Would you say having that identity, uh, that tie helped you get through a lot of that trauma and ultimately lead you to being more active in the community versus just kind of having the fate of of a lot of other people who experienced what you experienced yeah yeah absolutely you know there were some 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 major cultural things that that remained you know I, I, I i probably made it sound like they divorce themselves from their previous culture but they didn't do that Mm. um we had we had celebrations we had gatherings we i had a i got a huge family on both sides that that you know i did hear the language i did hear the music um i was a part of festivities and ceremony gatherings uh that you know that 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 put starch in my backbone you know those are the things that that when we 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 in our darkest moments we got to lean on is 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 our culture right um we have uh we have many different celebrations there are things there are times when uh we'd get together with the with, the, with my, my barbados family and they would uh i remember i remember early on we were the, the elders were making ginger beer Mm. I'll never forget that day. And then there were there were times when I got together with my my Cape Verdean family on the on the the feast of the Santa Cruz, um, which is which is huge from from my my grandmother. Um, you know, it was a huge big party, and uh, and uh, there you know there there are many things like that that um, that I I I reach back for, and even to this day I I, I you know uh, they're very much a part of my. Uh, my substance, you know, and and if I didn't have any of that, I never would have made it through um, 
you know, uh, to this day, as you know, as we said. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's that. That actually touched on one of the things I was going to ask Keith. So I was, I was, Sorry to uh, steal your thunder, thought, man. So no, no, no. It's all good. I like it. So, um, man. So I did not actually know that you wanted to be a priest until you said that. Um, and as I look over here, I see a couple of holy Bibles. What is your What is your association with the Catholic Church or the Church in general? My current affiliation, right? I'm, I'm not a practicing Catholic now. Um, and it's been a long time since I've been a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. I, I, I once in a while will attend a mass with my wife, who is a practicing Catholic. She won't mind me mentioning that. Uh, hi, Jebby. Yeah, we've been married 34 years, and we got married in the Catholic Church in Connecticut. Uh, a happy anniversary coming up. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, appreciate that. I um, have studied theology on my own. This this is really long and complex story too, but I, I I will say this: I'm a follower of of Jesus Christ, hmm? um, but I also um, am a practitioner um, in in Buddhist philosophy. Right? I find I find that they 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 accompany each other very well. Right? Um, and at the same time. As you mentioned, you know, I, I maintain a connection to my African culture and, and understand Christianity differently through the lens of a more indigenous African worldview. <laughs> so to say all that, I, I'm, I'm, and, and I've been influenced by, um, 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 by some what, what we what what is often called new thought, um, uh, which ha- is more of the you know sort of progressive ways of looking at spirituality mm-hmm. in general, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I got a whole lot of stuff going on, you know, in yeah. terms of yeah. uh, you know, but it, but it is meditation that keeps my life together. I think Keith and I will both agree with that. I had to meditate before the conversation to level set myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something we're, we're going we're gonna to leave you with is a, a book on some Stoic philosophy, something that we've kind of gotten into a little bit recently. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely switch lenses and go boxing, Boston, um, black, Irish. We recently had a, uh, a fight between a, a gentleman named Floyd Mayweather and another gentleman named Colin McGregor, who's from Ireland. Mm. Um, I, there were some undertones to that fight that I think they perpetuated to make money. But what I saw in social media and in conversations, it was really nasty. Being that you lived in Boston and you actually had to learn to fight uh, uh, through a lot of that, what, how did, what did you feel or think during that fight? And you, mm. you're, you're in a different place now, but... What did you think about that fight, the setup, the effect it has on a young minds? On, on, on Yeah. So, yeah, let me talk a little bit about boxing in this is that uh, there, this is nothing new you know, as far as boxing goes. The promoters uh, make a ton of money by, uh, by promoting uh, racial animus. Okay. And so this goes way back to the beginning of boxing. So this is so fast forward to this to this particular fight. Um, they they know that 
uh, the more people, you know, can see this in, in through a racial lens, um, the more people want to buy tickets. Sure. Okay. And 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 pay per view. Right. So there's that. Um, boxing has a history of this, and you know it's it's kind of sad, um, but it exists. And you know that just takes me into this whole other idea that um, nowhere in in life in the United States is race not a factor. Okay, so people want to separate out race from sports. You know, with this Kill Kaepernick BS that's been happening, right? Um, they want to say, you know, oh, why we got why you got to bring up race? Why has race got to do it? I just want to watch a football game. I just want to box a boxing match. Ray, why you got to bring race into it? Let me tell you, man, race has been a part of this shit since it started. Okay. And race is tightly woven into the fabric of our society. There is nowhere you can go. There is no activity that you can involve yourself in that does not involve race. So get over it. Uh, race is a factor in, in, in daily life. So y'all you, just going to have to get, get with that. You brought up Kaepernick, the anthem. So essentially you say it's a factor. Um, a lot of people say respect the country, stand for the anthem, yet they may or, but many of them don't know the actual anthem. And it was, wasn't written to include people that look like me and you actually specifically excluded free slaves freed slaves who decided to fight elsewhere so yeah it's always been there right the, the mm -hmm. context for the reason we're even here yeah. a lot of I us mean, you 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 know castigate this dude you know um over this and then 20 years from now there'll be a postage stamp with his with his picture <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's the same thing that happened with muhammad ali uh well so talk about this talk about this then so Rosa Parks. So a lot of people don't know the real story, like because she wasn't the first, but uh, she was the one that was noticed. There, and there was a reason for that. Like, she was it was it was a thought out plan um, because of who she was and, and and her family life and her spiritual life and all of that. Um, but like I've I've heard it uh, when people talk about say Kaepernick or or anybody that's trying to do something today that has to do with race or standing up, um, say even Black Lives Matter. They look back and say, oh, well, why don't they do it like Martin Luther King or and and then the next thought or maybe the unsaid thought is, oh, but he was liked and respected and loved. He was public enemy number, number one. one. He was a socialist. He was a communist. He was a terrorist. He was anything they could think of. They he was, was assassinated. It. <laughs> he wasn't loved. He was not loved. No, he was not loved. And I think I think it was uh, I think it's uh, Cornell West that said that you know we now are experiencing the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King, hmm. right? He's now he's like Santa Claus. Everybody loves Martin Luther King, right? And 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 you know, of course I agree we should, right? <laughs> <laughs> we should love him. But hey, back then they hated they hated him. History uh, has a way of of of, of um, Vindicating, you know, the situation after 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 about thirty years, folks will, you know, look back on this moment and say, "What was all that bullshit about?" You know, really. 
you know, as, as people, the way we process memories and history is we have, you know, we, we think back to the good times. It's, it's like the concept of make America great again. Well, what does that mean? I look back and, oh, we had a booming middle class and we had this and we had that, but we also had staunch racism and segregation and Jim Crow. And so, so, and Linda, like all of these things, but we do this throughout history we always think back to greater times it's the concept of hindsight being 2020 it's it's clear all of the good things and to your point you know uh, the Kaepernick the Kaepernick you look at what he's done and what he's accomplished I mean he inspired us to to start our podcast and manage you know more civil dialogue around these complex conversations mm-hmm. and it, people still talk about it is it, Rodney says to me, he said to me the day it happened, and I'll never forget that conversation, you know, what better way could could he have done it? A year later, that question holds more true than, than I think it ever could and right. will continue to hold true because we still have everybody. I mean, I see it everywhere, whether you're talking about football, whether you're talking about the protest, whether you're talking about black and white, people are still talking about it. his impact is is proving itself out all because he knelt right. during the national anthem in a very very peaceful way. But I could, but I so don't want to lose. Why was he kneeling? You know, we are so you know focused on you know, we're distracted in some ways away from the main core issue, and the issue is the treatment of black people in America. Okay. Yes. He has highlighted that, and for that I will forever thank him. Right. He sacrificed possibly his career, his livelihood. Right. So that he could bring attention to the issue of today. Right. Police abuse. Now, I have a lot of individuals out there in the world that probably hear this podcast that will be angry and say, well, you know, you you Black Lives Matter people need to be thinking about all the murders of of black on black murders. Yeah. okay, look, dude. Right. Well, the answer, I, my answer to that is yes and. Yes like, and. Yeah, like. Yes. And. There, there I is can, a, you know what? I can chew gum and I can walk at the same time. I can multitask. And I've been multitasking. You you wanted to ask me about my work today. Yeah. I've been multitasking for 30 years on that. Okay. I've been, I've been, uh, I just mentioned that I've been in juvenile halls. I've been in the streets. I've been working with young people. I got my own youth program, teaching boxing, trying to work with these young people to, to train them up, right? And get them ready for the battle because we need some warriors out here. Okay. And what we need is, is warriors that understand that they are responsible for three things to take care of yourself, to take care of your family, and to take care of your community. That's what warriors are supposed to do. Right. And that's what I'm focused on. So that's the that's the part about the community violence that they're everybody worried about. I've been trying to do violence prevention, leadership development for 30 years. OK, so don't come with don't come to me with that. But in the meantime, I can still be concerned that that that, you know, all these deaths are occurring among my community at the hands of the police. And there is never any any sort of accountability and responsibility taken. I mean, we got a district attorney here in Los Angeles County right now who is on her watch. 300 people unarmed have been killed by police in L.A. County while she's been uh, the D.A. here in Los Angeles County. And not one 
prosecution. How does I mean? How is that not state-sanctioned violence? So that's the difference to me. It's like when people talk about the black community and violence, and that is a huge problem. And as a black man, like I have a problem with it. There's this underlying assumption that all black people are thugs, and that they like that all that everybody is okay with this. Like there are people in the there, there are tons of victims in that community. Not everybody's gangbanging. It's it's this, I guess modern phenomenon of what I'm exposed to. So I'm a white person. I live in the suburbs of of Ohio and I have zero exposure unless it's on TV. And so what do I see on TV? I see people say, white people say, well, what about the black on black crime? Well, do you really think that people within that community are ignoring it? Do you really think that's being unaddressed as you had mentioned, Lloyd? And it, it's not that it's going, it's just not a national story. It's not something that we talk about. And I think about, you know, this concept of, of white privilege. We've been talking a little bit about this lately. And I want to go back to the Kaepernick thing because I heard um, a, an opinion recently about, you know, the representation of the individuals who just want to turn a game on <laughs> and they don't want to be reminded of all of the things that are going on in this world by watching uh, a man protest, you know, and who is that person that you're speaking about? Is it the white guy that sits down on his couch after a long day of work who doesn't want to be reminded that that there are, you know, interracial struggles? Well, guess what? minorities in this country are reminded of it every day. They can't, I mean, you can't escape it. You can't. So, so why are we afforded that privilege to say, oh, let's forget about it. We need to be reminded so we can ultimately take that, that police violence against unarmed people. Death is, there is no excuse for death against an unarmed person because especially by a gun. I, I just, I can't justify it and why there's no prosecution. So if, if we as, as white people and, you know, speaking, um, you know, as, as a white person aren't speaking up to say, listen, this exists everywhere, but we, we need to be aware that one, the, the black on black crime, people are addressing it. If you want to address it, speak up within it. Talk, help the cause within the community just because, you know, just because it's black on black doesn't mean only black people have to help to have to help. Mm-hmm. And then when everybody denies the the existence, 300 unarmed killings, unarmed, that's and then they're not. And you didn't say white, black, what Latina, is the it doesn't matter. Unarmed is unlike civilians. Right. These are people that these are like, citizens, citizens of the United States that the flag is supposed to cover, right? And what's the prosecution rate nationally of of unarmed murders against citizens uh, on police? Like, what's that prosecution rate of police officers? What is the prosecution rate within the policing community? Are why why is it that people aren't standing up and speaking out? I kind of want to hand the floor to you for the last few minutes here to maybe. Talk a little bit about what you're doing, if you want to go into implicit bias and the training you do and or any grand thoughts on where we are as a society right now, politically, racially. And also, I think we're going to need a part two at some point. Yeah. Uh, you know, I appreciate this opportunity, guys. I mean, you know, I've been storing up a lot of stuff. OK, so that's that's you guys got got the I, I like unleashed it on you. Okay. <laughs> 
I've been waiting for. Uh, I'm glad you could feel comfortable. To, to actually, you know, I, I didn't know why you you all cared to listen, but what I should say is that um, the work today is uh, is kind of multifaceted. I would say, right? Uh, I've been trying to attack the the school to prison pipeline with all veracity. That's that's been one of my main issues is to, is to work on that in every aspect of it, right? Wherever I can find a crack in that pipeline, I'm there beating it with my hammer, you know, trying to trying to destroy it. Okay, and what we have is a situation in our country that you know we've got this mass incarceration thing that's unsustainable. We've got to do something. Okay, and everybody in in this country has some skin in the game, whether they know it or not. They got to wake up and understand that this is a national security issue. This is this is an existential issue for the United States of America. Are we going to treat our citizens this way? Are we going to have some justice in this country? Right. We consistently I, I keep going to these forums that's how we met right all these doggone forums everywhere there's a forum on this a forum on that i went to a forum last week on the on reforming the justice system many many you know they had these panelists and everybody you know i didn't learn anything new but at the end of it you know i wanted to make a point and i stood up and you know, and, and and i just basically said to the group the title of this this workshop tonight is, you know, reforming the justice system that that uh, suggests that we have a justice system that is broken. But that's not the case. The justice system is performing exactly the way it was designed to oppress people. It was designed to keep the oligarchs in power and to keep them safe from everybody else. And we, we don't want those masses messing, meddling in our business. We got to keep them controlled. And that's the way this is, 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 is set up, man. And the sooner we get woke to that and the sooner even the police get woke to that. Right now, you know, that part of my work is to actually do training with police officers. Right. Um, so what? Yeah. Talk about that just for a second. That's been an evolution for me, man. I, when I first got started in it, it was 20 something years ago. My thinking has evolved and so has training evolved and so has the police evolved and so has, you know. But in the beginning, my idea was that if we could bring the community and the police together and if we could just dialogue and talk about things, we could see each other as humans and we would be able to walk away and everybody would be more respectful and, and things would be different. I also thought that that if we could just employ more black and brown people in the in the police department, that would be the answer. Right. And so I fought for those things. Those were I was those were the things I was fighting for. And I continued to, you know, just dialogue with people and try to get the police and the community in the same room together and, you know, and all of that. And and then I was out on the front lines fighting for more black officers. So if you're if you're listening tonight and you're you're a black officer. And or or or, or a Latino officer, uh, Latinx officer, you're welcome. You know, I'm glad you have the job. I'm glad you got the benefits. I'm glad that that it's working out for you, right? That's what I was fighting for. Um, but it, but it hasn't fully translated into all that I thought it would be, right? Um, training has evolved, right? We we are looking at 
various methods of training. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we are understanding different things about the, the profession and, and, and about psychology and about everything else that's, that's involved. Right. Um, the, the big buzzword, as you know, is, is implicit or unconscious bias is a huge uh, piece of this thing that needs to be uh, addressed and worked on. I haven't yet seen um, training that I feel really, really, really um, offers uh, law enforcement uh, the tools that they need to mitigate implicit bias. I don't. I Can don't you explain implicit bias for us, right? Because um, I know a lot of people, and I actually did this in one of our episodes. Was confuse it with racism. Um, right. So if you tell somebody they have implicit bias, they're going to, no, I'm not a racist. Right, right. Implicit, mm-hmm. implicit bias in the short form is something that we all have. You can sit down and take a test. Harvard University has done studies and they created a, an online test you can take uh, that, that will show you clearly what, you, what your biases are. Um, we are unconsciously impacted all of our lives by all the things that we're exposed to. And those influences, that stuff sticks in your head. It's in there. All those stereotypes, all those things, all the things that you, your parents told you, all the stuff that you learned in church, all the stuff that you saw on television, all the stuff that, that you know, all the experiences you had with the, the other, all that stuff is the in The reason you head. only drive a Ford and won't drive a Chevy. Yeah. Implicit bias. Yeah. <laughs> all that stuff is in your head. You have developed synapses in your brain that you know, mm-hmm. that that you know govern the way you see things. Now you might not be conscious of it, consciously aware of it, but there are ways to measure it, and it is a fact that all of us are biased. And in fact, you know the, the weird part is that many many of us black people are biased against black people. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. we don't even know it. Okay, so a lot of what we talked about before, mm-hmm. it has the direct relation to this. But until you are aware of it, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Because it's not, it's not a part of your awareness. It's subconscious. And so what we want to do is draw it out. You want to become aware of it. I think the confusion, because BuzzFeed wrote an article a while back in August of last year. Implicit bias means we're all probably at least a little bit racist. <laughs> One, do you agree with the sentiment that just because you have a bias means you're there to suppress or oppress somebody else and you should be dubbed a racist? And two, do you see danger in that ability for people to move past their implicit biases because all of a sudden they think they have it and now they're a racist and either they're guilty with it or they just say deal with it? Well, that's that's certainly the fear, right? You know, nobody wants to be a racist, Okay, so you know nobody wants to be called a racist, you know, except unless you are, <laughs> unless you're David unless Duke, you're, right, you're <laughs> one of those all right, <laughs> unless you are one, and you're know, okay that with been it. marching with yeah. the tiki torch. Um, but I don't agree with that, right? That you know that we're all a, a little bit racist because we have implicit bias. Again, this is unconscious stuff that only surfaces, you know, it, it will mostly surface in instance of, of some sort of uh, drama, right? Stress. When this is some sort of stress is is bringing it up. So that's why, we, you know, why we're really focused on, you know, with, with police officers in a moment when they've got to make a decision about life or death, it, is it impacted by some unconscious bias that they have? And the answer to that is yeah, probably. And so what needs to happen is they have to be aware of that trigger or whatever that bias that is there and 
work on it. It has to be conscious. You have to work on it. And guess what? You have to work on it every friggin' day. It's not something that you go to a workshop for eight hours, four hours, whatever, and then, oh, I got an, okay, cool. Do I get a certificate for this? Right. And then then they go out after the after the workshop and then back to the street. Right. No, it's a daily practice that needs to occur. And there's some things that you know I have ideas about, but I haven't yet been able to um, have a lot of big voice on it. But, you know, we, we can push on it. It's a part of the evolution of this training that needs it to occur with law enforcement. But I have to say this, too, that I'm also an activist. Right. I'm a part of Black Lives Matter. I'm a part of immigrant rights struggles. Right. That are out here. And as such, I'm also influenced by by this movement and the, and the many members of the movement who tell me that I'm crazy for trying to train police officers because there's it's, it's a futile thing because the whole system is um, is is corrupt and therefore should be abolished. The whole system of policing should be just abolished. And so, you know, tinkering around the edges of it, fraternizing with the enemy and trying to influence it from within is a futile effort. Right. So I have this push and pull all the time, even inside myself. As I said, when I began this work, I thought the dialogue process was going to fix it. I thought adding more minority officers was going to fix it. Adding more women to the force was going to fix it. And, and it can, the problems just keep continuing. So I keep evolving in my thinking, too. And and I, I, at this present moment, I don't even know where I am. But I keep, again, running up and down that pipeline with my hammer, trying to knock away at some aspect of this school to prison pipeline. And, 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 and in the area of policing, I'm going to I'm going to find you know, some way to contribute something to save some lives. And if people think I'm crazy, then I'm just crazy. I want to thank you for sharing some very intimate stories, um, your opinions. And I got to commend you for continuing that that conversation within because, you know, part of our mission and part of part of what we're trying to do is we we know that it is a daily effort. At the same time, it's an effort in in bringing light and conversation to with everybody and, and it's it's not just about let me tell you what's going on and stay away from you at the same time it's I know it's going to be a long struggle and the the most worthwhile things in life are the hardest things that you could possibly ever accomplish and you probably never will because the next generation is going to have to carry that torch. And so from my perspective, I just give you a bunch of credit to continue down that road and for continuing for 20, 25 years. And I really hope we have an opportunity to dive deeper into that conversation because I think a lot of people who listen to us so far would would greatly benefit from from a lot of the experience that you've had especially today with implicit bias um, so that's the last thing I wanted to say and I just thank you enough yeah thank you for sure thank you guys I appreciate uh, the invite thanks for reaching out